Hey, this is Dan Reeves. I'm the lead pastor of Journey Church in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Welcome to our podcast. Before we get going, we just want to take a moment to thank you for tuning in. We believe that you matter, not only to us, but to Jesus. Our hope is that you find something new and life-giving in Him today. Here's today's message. Right, man, I'm having kind of kind of having fun. Are y'all having fun? Yeah, it's a good day. Hey, I meant to mention this earlier, but at the end of the service, we have two baptisms today, and so don't sneak out early. I know how you do. All right, don't sneak out early. We put that at the end so you'd have to stay. But uh, Cooper and Ashlyn are going to be uh, uh, sharing their testimonies at the end of the service, and so uh, we're going to be leading up and celebrating with them uh, as they become a part of our family and to celebrate what God's been doing in their life. Hey, we're going to be in Acts 2 uh, today, a familiar passage, but we're going to take a little bit of a journey to get there. Uh, and so we've been in the middle of this series called The Table, and uh, we've been following this uh, theme that the author Luke uh, shares with us. Uh, it's kind of a uniting motif, if you will, uh, of trying to share the story of Jesus and, and really put flesh on it for us. Uh, and uh, really, he, he sets up this whole idea from the very beginning, but one of the very first verses that we talked about was in Luke chapter 7, verse 34, where Luke describes the Son of Man this way. He says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus being designated as a Son of Man, one of the things from Luke's perspective that stood out was the nature of his relationships, the place where he spent time. Um, And it is somewhat like today, but maybe a a little bit more pronounced that in ancient times, the table uh, was both a place of uniting and it was also a place of separation, Uh, especially from a Jewish perspective. I mean, you would not keep table fellowship with someone uh, that uh, was not following God uh, from your perspective. Uh, One, you could not uh, really determine or uh, uh, ensure that they were following kosher laws. And so you didn't know who they were Uh, how the food was prepared. You didn't know if it was prepared in such a way to really adhere to the Levitical law. And so you'd be really careful about who you'd spend time with. But it wasn't just about the food. It was also about the character of the type of person or um, the way that they appeared uh, to you. Uh, And if you were a tax collector or a sinner, uh, which is kind of a blanket designation for a whole lot of things, uh, then that would oftentimes mean that this is the type of person you would not keep company with because just by sharing table with them, you yourself will become defiled. And so, you know, the way that Luke tells the story, Jesus got himself into a whole lot of trouble, a whole lot of hot water right out of the gate because uh, he began to associate and he began to knock down the wall around the table to send out the invitations, as we've been saying, and bringing everybody to the table. And you can follow this theme through Luke as we've done. We didn't hit all the stories. There's a ton more in Luke's gospel. We've just kind of been cherry picking a few as we've been going along. Um, But it really all leads up to Luke chapter 22, that last meal that he shares with his disciples. Uh, You remember it. We celebrate it once a month here where we celebrate uh, the remembrance of communion or what we call the Lord's Supper. And the way the quick synopsis reads is this in Luke 22, 19. He took bread, he gave thanks and broke it. 
And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now this was shared at a Passover meal. Uh, we know the Passover meal was to be uh, uh, the yearly celebration, the remembrance of the passing over uh, of the destroyer over God's people when they were being released out of Egypt. Uh, and if you remember the story, uh, you can go back and look it up if you're not familiar with it, but back in Exodus, uh, they would take the blood of a lamb and as they were instructed and they would put it over the doorpost. Uh, and as the destroyer, destroying angel would fly over, then if you were underneath the shielding of the sacrificial blood of the lamb, then you and your household, everybody that was underneath that and covered by it was saved. Uh, and uh, that was really where we get the idea of redemption. If you hear redemption uh, uh, in church words uh, or in the church world, uh, really it began with the people being redeemed out of captivity in Egypt. And the way that that was supplied primarily was by the move of God, by the sacrifice of God himself. And so it's telling, right, that the, uh, the kind of the climax, if you will, of Jesus's, excuse me, I'm gonna cough real quick, ministry uh, was, was simply this meal, this celebratory meal, this remembrance of meal. And, and what Jesus does is he breaks the bread and he shares the wine. And as he does it, he reconfigures or reintroduces a new paradigm to understand what sacrifice looks like. And he points to himself as a sacrificial lamb. And so if you were one of the disciples and you had been at all these meals with Jesus, uh, the one that was being called a, a glutton and a drunkard who had kept company with all the wrong people around the table. And then at the final meal, at the last supper, you come together with all the other disciples and all the other followers that are still hanging on by a thread to Jesus as he goes into Jerusalem. This would have been, would it not have been just kind of this thing that's just stuck in your mind? It would have been locked into your psyche. It would have been a, a, a moment uh, if Jesus says, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. This famous meal that you had partaken of since you were a child, Jesus reintroduces to you a new way. This would have stuck with you. Well, three days or so, or a couple days after this, excuse me, uh, Jesus goes to the cross, right? And so as Jesus goes to the cross, um, all those uh, hopes and dreams of the disciples were dashed and uh, they thought it was over. Uh, they thought that uh, they had just been mistaken. They were kind of reeling from the news. They could not erase what they had just seen on the cross. It was such a graphic picture. Um, and they'd been following Jesus around for three years and they'd spent all this time at table and they just remembered this table, but then Jesus was gone. And it was really hard, I would imagine, um, it would make logical sense to put this whole thing together. I mean, think about your life, maybe what you've been through this week just alone. Uh, probably not anything that, that is that significant, but some significant things have happened in your life. And imagine just reeling from these things that are real life events and you're trying to pick the pieces up and put everything back together. Well, Luke is not finished with the story. And as a matter of fact, we get a, a picture, a quick snapshot at the end of Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 24 of a few of the disciples that are walking around along this road to Emmaus. Um, and they actually are meeting with the resurrected Jesus, but they don't recognize him. They don't see who he is. They don't put it all together. And Jesus is talking to them and kind of talking about the events. And it's kind of this coy way, I think, of uh, the way that he's uh, interacting with them. And they can't put it together until one moment in Luke 24, verse 30. 
This is the way it reads. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight and they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? You see, they, they knew something was going on, but they could not fathom. Uh, they were not predisposed to the notion of a resurrection. If you just think that people in antiquity were just like, oh, they were just predisposed to believe in anything. And so the resurrection probably was just, you know, one of those things that they just assumed would happen. Nobody assumed it would happen. And even so much so that the people that were called his disciples, the men and women that had walked with him, and these particular individuals, these guys on this road to Emmaus, what did it take? It took a meal. It took sitting at a table with Jesus. It took the symbolism of the breaking of bread. It took hearing Jesus give thanks, and it took Jesus serving them. And so this is Luke's story. This is the way that he, he tells it in his gospel. But remember, Luke is not finished. Anybody remember what other book that Luke wrote? The book of Acts. He also recorded the accounts of the first, uh, the first happenings within the church, post-resurrection. And so it's, it's fitting, it's fitting that if you follow the story out, uh, the individuals, the disciples, the men and women that had uh, tried to put all the pieces back together, we find them in Luke's second installment, the book of Acts. And they're up together in a room, just as Jesus had instructed them. And as he ascended into the clouds and he promised that he would return about 50 days to the day after the resurrection was another feast. And it was a feast of Pentecost. Uh, the Feast of Pentecost, like Passover, was a fixture on their calendar. Um, we went through a fixture on our calendar yesterday, didn't we? We, we remember 20 years uh, of 9-11. Um, and when we, when we remember that, when we see those things on social media, um, I saw some images yesterday, uh, and it just brought everything back like a flood. Uh, I can remember exactly where I, I was on our old house on A22 West Strawn. And I uh, had an electrician friend of mine up in the attic uh, running some wires and I was talking to him and I can remember the whole moment. I can remember everything. And we do that around historical events. And so the feast would be ways to commemorate things. And the feast of Pentecost was a time when the people of God, the Israelites would get together and they would, uh, it would basically be a harvest festival. It would usually happen around May. Uh, early summer perhaps, and uh, they would get together and it became synonymous with the giving of the law and the meeting of God at Mount Sinai. And so remember what happened at Mount Sinai. We spent uh, the summer talking about it where God first meets with Moses at Mount Horeb, which is also Mount Sinai. Later, he, when he tells Moses to bring him back to Mount Sinai, then what happens is God comes in fire on the mountain and meets with his people. Well, in Acts 2 at Pentecost, the same thing happens. A holy fire comes down, but this is different. The holy fire that comes down this time is not in a burning bush. Uh, it becomes flames that rest on individuals and they share in the spirit and they become one in the spirit. 
And so it is fitting, isn't it, that in Luke's telling of the story that has everything to do with meals, that we find the story of the first church rooted in a feast. And that paradigm, that, that kind of idea becomes really ingrained in the psyche, in the culture, in the being of the early church. And you may be familiar, we're finally to Acts chapter 2. Uh, you may be familiar with the first description of the first church, and it has everything to do with people coming to the table. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Um, I highlighted just a few things. There's so many things in here to talk about, and we'll, we'll hit a few of them. But the first thing I wanted to draw your attention to was that repetitive nature of breaking bread. They broke bread, and they prayed, and they broke bread at their homes, and they ate together. Now, um, uh, first century uh, writing like Luke, you didn't have uh, all caps uh, that you could send a text with uh, in your uh, text message. You didn't have emojis, all right, to really convey what's so important to you to convey, you know, with those emojis. I'm really bad at emojis. My family will tell you. Uh, I pick the wrong ones all the time. I don't really know what they mean, apparently. But uh, if you wanted to make a point in antiquity, the way you would do it without those really cool devices that we have is you would just use a repetition. You would say things over and over again. And so a lot of times you can do this when you're reading scripture. If you want to know what's really important to the author, what, what did he repeat or what did, what did they say over and over again? Um, and so as you do that, things will be drawn to the surface. And what you see here is the fixture of the story in Luke's mind, I think, of the picture of the church coming around a family table. And this sets in motion the way that the church would exist for a few hundred years, that the church was primarily centered out of the home. So I wanna take you through real quick. Y'all wanna do a quick survey of history on Sunday? Y'all excited? Oh yeah, yeah, let's do, let's do some history. Um, this is a very summary-driven uh, summary history lesson, okay? So uh, don't worry, there's not a quiz at the end. Um, but I, I want to cover four quick stages, and these are loosely defined, but you can see this if you, if you trace out history, of the, the movement of the church from the table to where we are today. I mean, I had to bring in a table and... and uh, some people might think it's weird because we're used to sitting on ro in, in rows and have a stage and all that. How did we get from that to this? Well, the first stage I want to look at with you just real quick is that the first stage of the church was the home and the center of the home was the table. It was the meal. Um, matter of fact, um, I'll show you a quick picture real quick. This is a picture of a home uh, from Pompeii. Uh, if you remember Pompeii, it was a, a, a Roman city that was destroyed by, all right, I said there's no quiz, but I want to give you one anyway. What, what mountain, what volcano? Vesuvius. All right, we're going to give him a, give him a free t-shirt or something. I don't know. Uh, yeah. And so everything was kind of frozen in time, 86, 80, 79, excuse me, 80, 79. 
Um, if you look at some of the excavations of that, you'll find something like this. And this is a, a framework of what a common home would have looked like then. And so if you, if you see it, there's a, uh, it's kind of hard to make out up here, but there's an atrium, which would have been a common space. It'd be more like a public space because homes uh, are not like where we just drop our garage door or we have our privacy fence. There would have been a public space and a private space. And this is where most of the churches or something like this would have met that Paul would have um, planted. They, they would have been planted and they would exist not in structures like this, but they would have in, uh, existed in structures like this. And people would come into a home. And so it was a house church movement. Uh, just a quick reference uh, from Paul's letters. I, I'll show you three passages that reference this. You can certainly study it yourself, but I'll throw them up here. Let's take that picture away so that we can read. There it is. Um, Romans 16. This is Paul talking um, to the Roman church. He says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me, not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. And so you had Priscilla and Aquila, a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, and uh, they had a house. If you can kind of imagine something, maybe like what you saw that picture from Pompeii, and they would host a church service and probably lead that service uh, in their home. But not just them, same thing in Colossians, Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters of Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And so this lady, Nympha, um, she had a church that met in somewhat of a house that looked like the one that you saw in Pompeii. And then likewise in Philemon, 1-1, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow co-worker, a uh, fellow worker, excuse me, and to Athia, our sister, and Archippus, I'm trying, uh, and our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. And so, again, you've got uh, another man and a woman that have a church that's meeting in their home. And so the home, you can see, became a fixture for Paul's church, move, church planning movement, which was the greatest church planning movement the world had ever seen. Um, and it was propagated and it was furthered by this idea of people coming around a table and becoming a family. Well, a few hundred years go by and uh, it moves, the center and the location moves to a different stage for the church. And this is the one that maybe some of us are familiar with. Uh, it's called the cathedral stage, I would say. Uh, and the center of the cathedral was the altar. Um, uh, I'll throw a picture up here for you as well. This is a layout of uh, Winchester Cathedral. And you can see what the image uh, presents to us, it's shaped in the shape of a cross. And so the architecture was designed uh, to communicate something. Uh, no longer are we in a home with a courtyard and a table. Now we're coming to a place um, where really it was not designed for what we're doing here today, like me talking to you or having singing. Uh, it was designed for the people to come in and they were to come to the altar to receive communion. And so uh, like most Catholic churches, this is uh, the setup that they have. Um, and so you know that the center of that is the, the, the 
the partaking of the Lord's Supper or communion that's administered by a priest. Um, and so, you know, at this point in history, uh, the me- there wasn't a proper message or a sermon like what we do. The, there was a recitation that would have been in Latin and some of the people would understand it. Some people wouldn't, but it was one common language. And so they would come together and they would hear this, but it would all lead to that moment, to the sacrificial moment of communion. And as they shared in that, then that actually set the stage for a mindset of what the church was about. And this carried on for hundreds of years and is still kind of lingering out there and, and is really a big thing today. But then you also move to what I'll say is the third stage, which is the colonial, and that's the pulpit. And I've got a really cool picture to show you what this is. That's me right there. Uh, this is at the Jamestown settlement in Virginia. Uh, this is a, a, re, a recreation of the Jamestown settlement. Uh, I was up there pointing my finger like a, you know, like I was really getting with it up there. That looks exactly like me, right? Uh, but you can see the pulpit became a thing during this period. Um, and uh, it was usually elevated, okay? And they didn't have like a platform like that, but they would usually make a box or something so that the word of God would be honored and it would be centrally located. And this is kind of a, uh, I would say probably a residual effect of the Reformation, you know, where the Reformation comes in, the reformers, uh, Protestant Reformation, which we're all uh, protesters. So if you don't like protesters, then I'm sorry you are one, you know, if you're here today. you know, they protested against the, first, the other model and a lot of the things that were going on and the abuses in the church. And one of the ramifications was that it was a recentralization around scripture. And uh, things moved from Latin to, common, uh, to uh, particular languages and translations and all those type of things. But the fixture that happened from that is what probably most of us are used to in our church experience in the South, where there's a pulpit that's centrally located, or maybe in some, uh, some faith traditions, it might be up and off to the, uh, to the right uh, up here and it's elevated in the corner. Uh, and it would be a way to just signify through architecture that the word of God was central. Uh, and that's what most of us are pretty comfortable with, I think, but from, from our history. But you can see, right, that with each passing of time, things kind of evolve. And if, if you see the way that it, it, it transpired, then you get to what we are today, right? And what we are today is that number no, fourth thing, if we go back a slide, can we go back one slide real quick? Is that fourth one, the theater or the stage? And um, you can see a little bit historically where this came from too, the um, entertainment culture um, as plays and musicals and uh, 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 stage productions of any kind, whether it be a concert or something like that, it kind of began to take on that field. That became a culturally appropriate thing that people connected with. And so what we do today probably gets its start from that. It, it's kind of trickled down to that. And so uh, you can see though, right, how this whole thing kind of began to evolve. And that is obviously a really quick run through of that, but it's telling, right? I mean, it, it probably makes you think about like, well, what, if, if you're a thinking person, you're probably like, well, is, are we doing what's right? Do we need to change something? What does that all mean? I mean, these are the questions that we should be asking uh, about things. And, and we do. Um, but if you go back to where the heart of it is, the heart of the church for Paul, for Jesus, and for the early church at large was the idea of the family. 
One of those verses I mentioned to you, I think it was the Colossians verse, if we go to that, Colossians 4.15. Remember that verse right there? That, that phrase, brothers and sisters, that phrase, brothers and sisters, that's a connotation of family. And when you think of family, when you think of the church, I think what Paul wants you to think about is family. As a matter of fact, if you survey the New Testament, Survey the New Testament, that phrase, brothers and sisters, that if you're in NIV is translated that way, some of you may have brethren or, or something like that in your translation. Well, it's a translation of a word that's uh, Adelphos. Adelphos means brothers and sisters. Uh, sometimes it can mean brothers. There's another version of it that means sisters. And there's sometimes that it's not genderly, uh, a gen is that a word? Gendered uh, word, it's a, it's a neutered word. All right, that kind of sounds weird, but anyway. Uh, that's an actual thing you say in linguistics, okay? All right, so uh, all you, get your mind out of the gutter for a second, okay. Uh, but it's mentioned 271 times as a description of the church in the New Testament. This is the most popular designation for the church, more popular than the body of Christ, more popular than anything else. This is what they use most frequently. Uh, if uh, some of you remember growing up in church, those of you that grew up in church, you may have grown up in an experience where everybody was brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so. Um, that's, uh, you know, that was kind of some of my early remembrance memories of the church is there's a brother so-and-so and and sister so-and-so. Well, this is where that comes from. And I say all that to say this, we're going to just look at a few of these little bullet points real quick about the description of this family. But what's important about this is simply this, is how we view what this is will determine what we become. Now, and I said, we've got some things working against us. All right, we got some things working against us. One of the things is we have a stage, all right? And um, the center, of, you know, you get that, that is the center of the thing. This building, um, just to let you know, like we're trying to reconfigure this building for use for public use. Um, we're trying to change the signage and things like that so that it can be used by the community. Our hope is that somehow partner with the city over here to have a park uh, at the back part of this is we, and hopefully to partner with the Methodist church so that we can create a destination place over here for the city. That'd be a blessing to the city. And we want this to be a building that the community could use in order to do that. And so that's the kind of the, the mindset behind that, but it obviously, even with that creates some obstacles. How do we take an entertainment driven culture phenomenon and shift it to become what it was in the beginning, what it was intended to be? It was family. Architecture works against that. Culture works against that. Our motivations work against that. All things work against that. So what does it take? Well, uh, one quote I want to read to you. Maybe this will explain it a little bit. This is from Welcome to the Family Table by Greg uh, Mamula. And he says this, Welcome to the Family Table is a process for learning and experiencing habits and discipleship that connect people to Christ, the church, and one another in powerful ways. The habits of eating together, dwelling in the word, storytelling and communion provide participants with space to embody kingdom teachings in their homes and strengthen their Christian brother and sister relationships with one another. Now, uh, that comes from a a book that uh, I've been reading from Scott McKnight uh, um, that really deals with Paul and his ability to pastor, what, what, what we learn from Paul as a pastor. Um, And so this is an idea that says we have to work at some things that started out a little bit more naturally, we have to work a little bit harder at. 
It takes intentionality. So if, if that's been hard for you, guess what? It's, it, you're not alone. Uh, it, it's in our culture, in our day, to recapture the essence of what church is supposed to be is hard. But it's not impossible. It's not impossible. It can't be. It's what God designed. Um, Jesus, himself, Jesus himself said that this is the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And so what does Jesus want for his church? What does he want us to be? And I think that's why Luke shares that description that I read earlier in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. This is going to go really quick. This is going to be really brief and really simple from this point forward. Um, I just want to make a couple of bullet point statements. And then we want to celebrate through baptism, which I think is the symbolism of people becoming a part of this family, of identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But if you dig into the story, the description, what, what are the characteristics? Well, the first thing is that we found in verse 42 of the church is that they devoted themselves to some things. Now, what does the word devoted mean? Now, I'm going to give you a quick definition. Uh, you'll have to write fast if you want to write it down. The word devoted, that actual Greek word means to be steadfastly attentive to. It means to give unremitting care to a thing or to adhere to one or constant to one. Now, all those things, they, they connote work, intentionality. Devotion is not easy. Devotion takes effort. It, it, it is by definition something that is unremitting. It's something that you have to be steadfast to give attention to. It's something that you have to hold on to. So what did they hold on to? What were the things they were devoted? And the first thing that they were devoted to, you see it real quick, is that they were devoted to learning. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Um, the thing that was very unique from this, at, in this uh, stage of the church was you have all these different religious backgrounds. Uh, it was primarily a Jewish movement at the beginning, obviously. And we're going to talk about uh, kind of how it breaks out of that next week uh, and, and, and where it goes from there. But this week, this idea that what were they doing? They were steadfastly devoted to hearing from the apostles, what is an apostle? Apostle is someone that witnessed the resurrected Christ. Uh, later, the word apostle becomes not just somebody that uh, witnessed the resurrected Christ, but it comes uh, somebody that operated uh, as a leader within the church. And so uh, uh, you had other men and women that would come and they would kind of apostle, they would lead uh, the church in, in that way. But at this particular time, if you think about these apostles that had been with Jesus, what would they have been sharing about Jesus? Would they would have shared who Jesus was, their experience with him, they, the eyewitness testimony that this was not about ethics primarily, though it has ethical implications. This was not a, a better yourself program, though it will better yourself because you're going to be made in the image of God and transformed in the image of God. It was all about the person and the event of Jesus. He was a historical person that died on a cross, that they saw him die, and they saw him resurrected. And so they gave attention to their experience. And so that was kind of like the stamp of approval. The resurrection, the eyewitness ability to see the resurrected Christ was the stamp of approval that everything that you heard Jesus teach, everything that you heard him say, everything that you saw him do was validated. It was valid. And so they had the authority based on what they had seen and heard in Jesus and primarily around the table and then through life, through experiencing life with him to be now able to do the same. And so what apprenticeship to Jesus is, 
is to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus in order to do what Jesus did. And so this is what they were doing. They took the baton and everyone was learning. This, this is the thing about Christianity, um, if you want to say it this way, is that this will take learning. And this is an aspirational goal, probably not a real uh, value for us right now. Um, we, we need to learn more than we have in the past. Um, we, we've got some growing to do um, because of our attention spans today. Um, we're early in the life of this church. We've got to, we need to put things in place in order to learn more so that we can grow in the knowledge of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and who he wants us to be because of that. And then everything in our life flows out of that, okay? Um, but again, what is that gonna take from you and from me? It's gonna take devotion. It's gonna take adherence. It's gonna take intentionality. And that's not a one-way street. That's all of us together as a family doing that. And the other thing that you see from that was not just a learning um, community of people, a learning family, but it was also a sharing family. Families share all the believers together and they had everything in common. It was evidenced by the fact that they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Now, um, it, it's really kind of taboo within our culture to talk about money. I mean, within church and, and rightfully so, there's been so much abuses and so much selfishness um, and, and, and so many different false teachings that have come out of that. And so everybody's just a little bit, eh, I don't wanna talk about money in church. But here's the thing is with, with with the faith, you know, when, when you talk about faith, it's supposed to encompass everything about you. And what is the biggest thing in your life, in my life, probably when it comes to day-to-day, -day, like governing your decisions and uh, your future and those type of things? Well, it's your finances. And whether or not you're gonna consume, whether or not you're going to hoard, or whether or not you're gonna share. And what this sets in motion is that a family any family that's working well together shares in responsibility. They share in uh, the investment because everybody wants to get excited when they come to church and they, they get involved in something that's happening. Oh man, that's great. But I wanna just kind of put it on the bottom line for you this way is that excitement without investment is empty. If you get excited about something that you're not invested in, then eventually something else will excite you. There will be a better offer than the church. Uh, something easier, what I mean by that. There'll be something easier. There'll be something that doesn't require as much from you that you can, I can consume. That's the way that we're geared, where culture works. And so if all we're building this on is, oh, are we excited about what's happening right now? If that is what's governing what we are, who we are, then it's empty. But if what governs who we are is our mutual and collective investment, then that's not empty, that's full. And that's something that can stand the test of time. And so this family is a learning family, it's a sharing family, but then it's also a gathering family. Every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts and they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Now, I think the designation is, is, it's not just this idea of meeting together, okay? Um, somebody said, well, you just gotta meet together. It's, the point is getting together. Listen, the point is not just getting together. Now you gotta get together, but how do you get together? What is the, that's an action, but there's an attitude behind the action. And the attitude is key. You see this in all Paul's letter. He's always trying to instruct, correct, um, guide, admonish them in the way that they approach their relationships. He says, do it with glad and sincere hearts. 
What does it mean to be glad? Well, to be glad is not to be negative. To be glad is to appreciate and have a heart of gratitude like we talked about this morning. Uh, it's not to be bitter and, uh, you know, all those type of things. It's to enjoy the idea and the presence of God and his people. And sometimes that's hard because we're all real people and we fail each other all the time and we're weak and broken. And so it's hard to be glad, you know, all the time. But to do it with sincere hearts. Sincere, basically, you may put it uh, kind of in the simple vernacular is this, is that it just seems don't be fake. And we've got to recapture this idea of family. The thing about family is you can't get away from the problems, you know, like you can't get away from things. Uh, you can't fake it forever, you know, like uh, it becomes very, you have to approach it with sincerity or it just doesn't work. And that's the same thing with church. Um, I think the world right now needs a sincere church, a group of people that are honest and we don't just like, you know, if somebody says something we don't agree with or we don't understand or we don't like, we don't automatically cancel them. We actually say, tell me more. Tell me more about that. Talk to me about that. Matter of fact, Paul instructed the church at Rome, all those house churches that we mentioned earlier, he said this, he said, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love. That's that devotion that we talked about. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. Like, you know, if we just took that and just said, well, that's our mission statement for the year, you know, um, with everything else going on in the world, if we, would, if we would just do, I mean, let's just even shorten it from there. If we would just say, verse 12, be joyful in hope, be patient in affliction, and be faithful in prayer. You see, this is what it means to be glad and sincere. Uh, to be sincere doesn't mean that you have to fake being nice. Being a follower of Jesus is not necessarily equatable with just being a nice person. It's being real. All right, and, and I think that's the thing that's really hard uh, in our culture to do, in our church experience. It's hard to be real, um, and it's hard to be glad because it's hard in general. But what sets in motion the ability to do that? Well, that's the la one of the last things I want to share with you is this. It goes on to say that it's not just sharing, it's not just gathering, but it's also praising. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Praising God. Um, when we come together... Obviously, we sing, uh, we celebrate through baptism, we should be celebrating a lot of things, but it's all because there's an audience of one. It's not for, uh, to impress one another. It's not to say, hey, we're the best church in town. Are we better than the one up the street or, or anything like that? It's how we're here to acknowledge, to exalt Jesus. Not a man, not a woman, not a denomination, not a church experience, not an approach, not a methodology, not a philosophy, nothing else except Jesus. And the beauty of that is when we all focus on Jesus, Jesus in our vantage point gets bigger. The analogy I always like to use is the supermoon. Uh, I, I like stars and space and stuff like that. I don't know a ton about it, but I, I'm interested anyway. Uh, but you know what a supermoon is. They happen a few times a year typically. Uh, it's when the moon uh, in its orbit comes as close to the earth as it can get and stay inside that orbit. 
And they say that when it gets closer like that, that in our, in our vantage point, it actually looks about 14% larger and about 30% brighter. And uh, you can tell if it's a supermoon night, if it's a new moon or a full moon and it's in that orbit, I mean, it looks big. It lights up the sky. It's almost like morning time. You know, it's so bright. Now, the truth of that is that the moon is not any bigger than it is any other time. It just looks bigger because it's closer. And when we praise Jesus together, it's not that God gets bigger. It's that he appears closer to us. And the beauty of Jesus begins to overshadow everything else in the room. And the more he increases, what Paul says, he needs to increase and I need to decrease. And when everybody in a congregation is decreasing, progressively decreasing, and Jesus is progressively increasing, then that sets the stage for a very attractive environment because you have a group of people that are not in for power plays. They're not for trying to get their foothold in something. They're not trying to position for things. And the world sees that. And so I don't think it's a mistake that Luke's making it is praising God and enjoying the favor with all people. Because the last thing our world wants to see is a bunch of selfish Christians all gathered together to, decide, to tell everybody else what they're doing is wrong and how right we are about everything and how God's always on our side for everything and we can't ever be wrong about everything. But instead, we're attracted because we exalt Jesus and we don't look to ourselves. And that's how we enjoy favor of all people. All people different backgrounds, different skin colors, different uh, ideologies that start out there. Like we, this is, this is the magnetic appeal of the gospel of Jesus when he's praised, when he increases and we decrease. You see the outpouring of that in all the church communities that Paul mentions. Three quick verses, you can jot them down, um, the, the headings or the references. These are all famous sayings. Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians, I supposed to say 1 Corinthians 12.13, excuse me. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we are all given one spirit to drink. Colossians 3 which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is in all and is in all. You've got the church at Galatia, the church at Corinth, the church at Colossae. And these were the same thing that you experienced in all the early churches is that the, the movement of Jesus was the most ethnically diverse religious movement in the history of mankind. Why is that? Because he blew down the walls of cultural distinction, of social distinction, of which there are many. He blew down the walls, he sent out the invitations and people, women felt at home at the table, Gentiles felt at home at the table, slaves felt at home at the table, people that were of different nationalities felt at home at the table. Why? Because when Jesus increases, our earthly boundaries decrease. And what was the result? Well, Acts 2, 47 ends with this synopsis. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That was 
that was the result of all the other devotion that was taking place, the move of God in a group of people that the Lord was adding to their number daily, those that were being saved. And if we could relocate the idea that a family of God, where we are brothers and sisters, we are siblings, that is our primary designation, our primary identity, we are brothers and sisters. And it's gonna take a long time to unpack all the, all the things that that means for us to visualize ourselves that way and recapture that. But what God wants us to do is he wants to take us on a journey to become a family. He wants to, t- he wants to reintroduce what the church is to us and to the world so that it's not about entertainment, it's about coming around a table. And God is always faithful that when we do that, that he is going to move and people's lives are going to be changed. And so what we're gonna do now is we're gonna celebrate. I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna celebrate baptism. Hey, as I pray, Matthew, will you turn off that breaker right there behind that, there's a breaker on the wall right behind the baptist. We are at home here, so I'm just giving instructions. It's right, keep on going. You see it, just flip it straight down. Perfect, okay. It kept kicking on. That's the heater so that we don't baptize people in cold water. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you today for, uh, Lord, your faithfulness in our lives. Uh, We thank you, God, that, Lord, you you made a family. You made us brothers and sisters. Uh, Man, we have so far to go as people that are being transformed into your image. Um, both as individuals and as a church. Uh, and I don't just mean this church. I just mean collectively your church. Um, but today we want to celebrate um, people coming into the family. Uh, we don't want to miss this moment of life change. And uh, Lord, we want to we praise you today. We want you to get bigger in our view. We want you to get closer. And we want you to increase and we want ourselves to decrease. And so, Lord, we celebrate uh, today with Cooper and with Ashlyn, and we pray, Lord, that you would be glorified as we hear their stories and witness their testimony. In Jesus' name, amen.